All right, let's pray and let's dig into the Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love you, Lord. We ask now as we go to your Word that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to us. Lord, I thank you for every person who is here, all by divine appointment. If anybody here doesn't know you, we pray that today would be the day of salvation. We pray that man would decrease, your spirit would increase, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. So quickly, we know the book of Revelation, the word is apocalypsis, it's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, we saw the outline, the things which were, the things which are, and the things which are to come. We saw the picture of Jesus in heaven in chapter 1. Now chapter 2 and 3, it's the letters to the seven churches. We're going to see the last letter this morning, the church of Laodicea. The churches so far, we saw Ephesus. So in each one of these, it gives an attribute of who Jesus is, because that's what this book is all about, unveiling Jesus. And then he would say the things that they were doing well as a local church, and then he would share things where they were struggling, where they needed, things needed to change. Now, in, in this morning's text, he's not going to say they're doing anything good at all. So this is really a rebuke on the church in Laodicea. So, so far, we saw the church in Ephesus. If you'll remember, their struggle was they had left their first love. They were really busy as a church. They had a lot going on, and from the outward appearance, it would look amazing, but they had left their first love. We saw then Smyrna, which was the persecuted church. They remained faithful. That was when if they, they had to go to make sacrifices to, to Caesar and burn incense, and if they didn't do that, they weren't allowed, allowed to have jobs. They would be shunned by the community. It would be so easy to spend two minutes just compromising your faith, but they chose not to do it, and persecution came after. We had the church of uh, Pergamos who compromised. They were the compromising church. Then Thyatira was the corrupt church. Then we saw Sardis. It was the dead church. You know what makes a church dead? It's not an old building. It's not an old broken down organ. It's not, you know, broken glass. What it is that makes a church dead is no Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is the reason that the church is alive. You know, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. And so this morning, we're going to look at, I know we saw, excuse me, last week, Philadelphia, which was the faithful church. Again, the one that really received the most praise from the Lord. And then finally, this morning, we're going to look at the church of Laodicea. If you have your outline, grab it. Let's go through it quickly. I'm going to dig into the text. So I tell the message, turning up the lukewarm, or turning up the lukewarm, leaving the lukewarm walk behind. So turning up the lukewarm. We don't want to be, we don't want to be lukewarm in our walk with God, and we're going to see that so clearly in this morning's text. Leaving Luke, the lukewarm walk behind and seven steps to stoking the flames of revival. So he's going to exhort them, and this is what the whole text is about, be hot or cold for the most part. Because if you're lukewarm, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. If God wants to vomit you out of his mouth, that's not good. You don't want that. Can I get an amen to that? So he's telling them to be hot or cold, and we'll talk about that in detail. So first it says, living every day knowing that Jesus is watching. You know, sometimes I've had people, when they find out you're a pastor, people kind of change their behavior sometimes. And once you know I have a full-time job and I'll be talking to clients and they find I'm a Christian, and then they apologize for all the cussing they did before they found out I was a pastor. And I'll always let them know. I go, bro, well, first of all, don't worry about me. The Lord's always watching, even when I'm not here. Can I get an amen to that? But remember that in our walk with the Lord, he's always watching. He knows, here's the good news. He knows you best and he loves you most. He's seen you in your worst moment, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? But one way that we get past being lukewarm is to remember that the Lord is always watching. Number two, leaving behind a lifestyle of compromise. This is where the hot and cold comes in. Lukewarm, you know, lukewarm water has too much heat to be refreshing and too much coldness to be therapeutic, right? Hot water is therapeutic. You can use it for, ther- you know, for therapy, and cold water is refreshing, and lukewarm water is just a mess. And so he says, don't be lukewarm. Then we're going to see looking at ourselves in light of God's word. Boy, does our country need that right about now. We all need it. The world needs it. Everybody's about their feelings. This is how I feel. This is what I think. And again, if you don't know the Lord, that's understandable, I guess. But the reality is that God created us in his image. And again, he knows everybody by name. He knows every hair on your head. He'd rather die than live without you. And sadly, we get more caught up about what people think about us than what God knows about us. And we need to have a relationship with the Lord and make Him the priority and look at ourselves in light of God's Word, not our feelings alone. Our feelings are real, but can our feelings lie to us? What's the answer? 
And so we, we see all this confusion in the world today. It's almost like the, by the way, how many of you have seen Jesus Revolution? Raise your hand. If you haven't seen it yet, go see it. I saw it for the fourth time yesterday with my wife. So good. So good. Beginning of the Calvary Chapel movement too. Now that tent looks pretty good, doesn't it? If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. All right. Number four, letting go of the temporal to pursue the eternal. The Bible says to set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. And most often when we get discouraged, depressed, anxious, fearful, it's because we're focused on that which is perishing instead of focusing on that which is eternal. Uh, Learning to love the Lord's discipline. The Bible says those who the Lord loves, he disciplines. So if, if there's no conviction in your life, there's been no conversion. Because if you've given your life to the Lord, then the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of you. It's not just with you like the world they call in their conscience. When you gave your life to Jesus, he came to live inside of you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He comforts you when you need to be comforted, but he also convicts us when we need to be convicted. And I am thankful for God's conviction. How about you? Because God's conviction draws us back into right standing with him. Again, we're forgiven. We're going to heaven. It's not a works-based salvation. But again, true faith does produce good works. Then number six, they're letting Jesus in. We're going to see the verse, behold, I stand at the door and knock. The Lord's knocking on the heart of everybody here. And it's really, this is spoken to the church. Remember that. So a lot of times people use this as a salvation message, and certainly you could apply it that way. But it's also talking about making Jesus the priority and the passion of your life. How do you know if you're living a spirit-filled life? How do you know you have the Holy Spirit within you? Here's how you know. Your life is all about Jesus. Amen? Your life is all about Jesus. Every thought, everything that you do, again, it's all about the Lord. And then finally, living in light of our heavenly rewards. So let's begin there in verse 1, or verse 14, excuse me, point number 1. We're going to take a look here at the lukewarm church. It says there in verse 14, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, right, as I have with each church. We're going to give a little background on the church, what the community was like, and how that applies to the text. You take a text out of context, I left the con, right? So angel there, we know that word's messenger, as we've talked about with the last six churches. Some believe that's literally an angel over that church. I believe in this case, in the context, he's speaking to the pastor. So this letter comes from the Lord, right? God uses John to write it, but it's delivered from the Lord to the local pastor, and now he opens it up and reads it. And when he reads it, again, what a great word of exhortation that that this church would understand where they were doing well and where they were falling short and God's exhortation to them. So Laodicea, we talked about Philadelphia last week, is about 45 miles southwest of of Philadelphia, about 90 miles east of Ephesus. So all these churches are pretty close to each other that we've been looking at over the last several weeks. And Laodicea was one of three cities right next to each other. Colossae, right? The church of Colossians and Heropolis, they're all right on top of each other. So situated on the Lycus River, which was fed by uh, the, the Mander River and controlled the commerce that passed along the river from inland to which is now modern day Turkey to the sea. So what happened is this was a place that was very wealthy where a lot of commerce took place. And what happens often is when people are extremely wealthy and extremely prosperous, we're going to talk about a couple of their industries that they had, we can cease to be desperate for God. You know, if we got a lot of money in the bank account and everybody's healthy and, uh, you know, marriage is good, then maybe you're not so desperate. But when we go through the trials of life, when we have to truly trust the Lord, then we become more desperate for God, which is a good place to be. It was also uh, situated on a junction between three great roads and Asia Minor. So they were just in a great spot to do very well financially. Four historical characteristics of this city that will help us to understand the context of what Jesus says. First of all, wealthy city with very, very wealthy citizens. So much so that they were wiped out by, they were wiped out by a huge earthquake, their entire city. And instead of seeking help from the government, they just rebuilt the whole city by themselves. They had so much money, they just rebuilt. It was in 60 AD, about 25 years after the Lord went back to heaven. They refused help from the Roman Empire. They rebuilt the entire city by themselves, didn't need outside help, didn't ask for it, and didn't want it. They were very self-sufficient. And again, sometimes that can be a bad thing. Uh, the Roman historian tells us that Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources with no help from us. So then they were so wealthy that, again, they were self-sufficient in need of nothing, 
didn't need anything from anybody. And again, as Christians, we can even get into that trap sometimes where we kind of isolate ourselves. And as believers, the Bible says to forsake not the gathering yourselves together and all the more as the day approaches. And sometimes we become so self-sufficient, we don't see need for anyone else. But here's the reality. I may have gifts you don't have, and you may have gifts I don't have. And as the body of Christ, we are called to minister one to another. Amen? But these guys were self-sufficient. They didn't see need from the Roman government or anybody else. Second, they raised a special kind of black sheep in the area. And it was a a shiny raven black wool cloth that, made, that, that was made famous throughout the world. And because of this, softness in the color was exported all over the world, producing numerous jobs and great wealth for the city. So guess what everybody was wearing in that city? Everybody's walking around covered in black. We're going to talk about why that's significant in the text. Number three, they had a school of medicine that produced a popular eye salve that was exported all over the world, was another great wealth-producing source in the city of Laodicea. Keep in mind, it's 2,000 years ago. They didn't have eye drops, right? They didn't have the stuff we have today. But this nation, so they had a great clothing manufacturing. They had things for their eyes so people could you know, re- restore their sight and see. And then finally, for all its wealth, they had one, the one problem they had is they had a horrible water supply. And it's going to feed right into the text. So Lycus River flowed through the city, would dry up during certain times of the year. Colossae was nearby and it had fresh, cool water that came right out of the springs. If you go to Israel with this, when you go to Tel Dan, you see literally a spring coming up out of the ground that just flows with great force. And it's the most clear, crystal clear water I've ever seen in my life. And that was Colossae. They had this cool water. It was very refreshing. But Heropolis was also nearby, had water that was produced by hot springs. So they had one city below, one city coming from this side that had cool water, one over here that had hot water. And guess what would happen when those two things merged? Lukewarm water. See the Bible rocks, amen? He's going to tell them not to be lukewarm. They're going to know all, they know all about lukewarm water because they don't have the hot water for th- therapeutic things and they don't have the cold water that is the cool water that is refreshing. So they traveled again the six miles. The hot springs would come down, and again, when the cool water and the hot water mixed, it was even hard to drink. So Jesus would apply all of these factors to the letter he's writing to them. When Jesus says, I know your works, he means it. Amen? He knows exactly what they're doing. He knows exactly what they're going through. You know, he knows everything about this church. He knows everything about your life, my marriage, our families. Amen? And the good news is we should want him to. And we should be surrendered fully to him. And we should desire to be hot or cold. We don't want to be lukewarm. So this church does not get a commendation in this letter. He doesn't tell them one thing they're doing well. Nothing. If you're the pastor of that church, not so good. Amen? If you're attending that fellowship, not so good. Remember, each city only had one church. You couldn't go to the church across the street. Right? I remember seeing this little cartoon. They, they find this guy in a desert island. And there's three shacks on this island. He's been living there by himself. And he said, what's that? He goes, that's, my, that's where I live. And he goes, what's that other building? He said, well, that's where I go to church. And he said, what's the other one? He goes, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> you know, everybody's always looking for another church to find something perfect, right? And if you found the perfect church, you'd have to leave yourself because you'd ruin it. Amen? <laughs> so Laodicea was seen by many Bible scholars as a representation of the church today. A lot of people believe the seven churches are seven church ages. I don't know if I believe that or not, but it could be. But the point is that all seven churches have applications to us, and we need to be really hearing what the Lord would say to us this morning about being lukewarm. Amen? Notice what he says here. He's going to describe himself. So each time what Jesus does, he describes himself in full in chapter one, and then each of the seven churches, he gives them an attribute about himself that is something that they need to be reminded of. So here's what he says of himself. These things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Boy, I love that description of our Savior. How about you? He is, first he says, the amen. Amen. Uh, I I say that once in a while, don't I? I'm the amen pastor, right? Amen means so so, so be it or it is done. And he is the He is the, so be it. He is the, it is finished. Amen? He is the amen. Jesus is, and then it says in 1 
uh, Corinthians, for all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen. Jesus is the personification and the affirmation of the truth of God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, amen? If you want to know what Almighty God looks like, we look to Jesus. He is God, right? One God and three persons, and he is a great and an awesome God. Notice it says the faithful and true witness. Of course, Jesus is faithful, and Jesus is the truth. And we live in a time where I have my truth and your truth. And my truth is, and stop it, there's only one truth, and his name is Jesus. Amen? I, it's so nauseating. If you go to college and they tell you to do that, just stop it. Can I get an amen? But it's that whole my truth. And what that means is, I have my own perspective, and my picture of truth is different than yours. And the sad part about that is that it's so deceptive because our, our flesh wants to be fed. Our flesh wants to be in charge. It doesn't want to surrender. It doesn't, the Bible says, if any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He is the faithful one. He spoke the truth. And even when the truth isn't easy to hear. Again, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. See, the Christian church in Laodicea was neither faithful nor true. That's why they needed to hear from the one who is faithful and true. They were, they were not living faithful lives, and they were not walking in the truth. You know, we all need people around us who love us enough to tell us the truth, even when it's hard. Amen? We should have some people in our life that love us enough that they will approach us and tell us the truth. I have that happen in my life often. You know, someone's come and say, hey, I know when you said this. Or, and I love that, and I appreciate that. And I think we should be people that are, are above reproach, but also very approachable. Amen? That we can share things like that. And, and sadly, the, they needed to hear the truth, and they're going to hear it from this letter. Now, most of you guys know, in 2009, I was in a hospital for almost a year. And during that time, I would, a lot of times I would, they would send me home. My fever would go back up. They'd take me back and you're going to need another surgery. And so imagine if the doctor just told me what I wanted to hear. Well, actually, you're doing great, Dave. So I'm on my deathbed with 106 fever. Actually, you're doing really well. Go ahead and go home. Don't worry about it. Now, that would be a horrible doctor and he'd be out of practice. Guess what? Our God is perfect and he's going to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear because he loves you. Amen. And so when we teach the word of God, we don't want to water it down to make you feel good in your sin. We should all feel, if, we're, if you're not convicted to some level every time the Bible's opened up, I mean, we should be, amen? It convicts us, it draws us unto the Lord. And again, I just remember that my doctor, he was, he was one of those guys that just shot straight. He's like, Dave, your infection's back. We're going to have to have do, do another surgery. You're coming back to the hospital. That's it. Okay. And praise God for that. If he told me what I wanted to hear, I'd have stayed home and I wouldn't be here right now. So if people don't tell you the truth, you might be happy for a while, but the consequences are coming. Then he says this, he is the beginning of the creation of God. Now, make, let me make this really clear. The beginning there means ruler, source, or origin. This verse teaches that Jesus is the ruler, the source, and origin of all creation. Jesus is creator, not created. Amen talked about this, all the cults, what they have in common, they make Jesus less and man more. And the way they do that is they, you know, they, they say, well, you can be more like God and God was just like you. And, and that's just not the case. Two undeniable facts. There is a God and you're not him. Amen. And this teaches that Jesus is the creator. He is the creation. Not that he was first one created. He, he was a creator. And beginning idea is uh, the first in prominence, not in sequence. It's that he's the beginning of creation. It means he's the preeminent one. Not that he's the first one created. He's the preeminent one over creation. So Jesus is the it is done. He's the faithful. He's the truth. He's the source of creation. And he's now going to share some very harsh truth that this lukewarm and self-deceived church needs to hear. And by the way, all of us need to be rebuked from time to time. Amen? Some of you don't read your Bible because it rebukes you sometimes. Amen? Read the book. Don't wait for the movie. It's good for you. Amen? And so the Lord loves them, and He loves us enough to tell them what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. Point number one was living every day knowing that Jesus is watching. He has His eyes on them. He knows you best. He loves you most. Then, and He is the truth. Point number two, leaving behind a lifestyle of compromise. Now, these are verses that people quote often. 
And I love when we get to verses like this. Look what it says in verse 15. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. The other five churches all had, the last five, five of the churches of the seven had, were told the wonderful things they were doing. Here's what you're doing well. None of that in Laodicea. A lukewarm church is a church that's not doing anything well. And the exhortation here is, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. So like the other churches, Jesus knows the works of the Laodiceans. And we often look at cold as bad, but cold doesn't have to be bad. Again, cold is refreshing, right? Cold water is good. And hot water's therapeutic. And he said, look, you're neither refreshing nor healing. You guys, you're neither one. I would rather you could be cold and refreshing or hot and, and, and healing, but you're neither one. You're having no impact. Again, you're walking in lukewarmness. In fact, the only other place in the New Testament where we see this Greek word for cold is found in Matthew 10, 42. It says, whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water in my name, in the name of a disciple, as surely I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. So the cold water, and again, there's some that would dispute this, but the cold water, again, was refreshing, and we need that, and the hot water was healing. So definitely good in this case. And remember, too, the water supply in Laodicea and the surrounding cities was uh, cool in Colossae, hot in, uh, in uh, Hierapolis, but in Laodicea, it was lukewarm and not really good for much. So the water traveled down a six-mile aqueduct, and again, the water was lukewarm and not cold enough to be refreshing and not hot enough to be therapeutic, so good for nothing. Then he says, I, w- I could wish that you were hot or cold. Again, hot water heals, cold water refreshes, but lukewarm water neither refreshes nor heals. It's useless for either purpose. It is as if Jesus said, you were cold, I could do something with you. If you were hot, I could do something with you. But because you're neither, I can do nothing with you. You're of no value. You're not doing anything for the kingdom of God. If you were cold, you'd be refreshing the people around you. If you were hot, you'd be ministering to others and pointing them to the Lord and have a healing touch in people's lives. Because you can't, you could do nothing. Look at verse 16. Again, so then because you were lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Literally what it means is you make me sick. If you're making Jesus sick, that's not good. Amen? Lukewarmness would immediately strike the Christians of Laodicea because the water they drank every day was lukewarm. And Jesus was saying, just as the water you drink is disgustingly lukewarm, so, you, so too you are lukewarm. We don't want to be lukewarm Christians. Amen? In a spiritual sense, lukewarmness is a picture of the indifference of compromise. It tries to play the middle. It's too hot to be cold and too cold to be hot. It's not neither extreme. It's just going with the flow like any dead fish can. But in trying to be both things, it ends up being nothing. Guys, you can't put your foot in the world and your foot in the kingdom at the same time. Because you're either, you know, either for him or you're against him. A lot of people are doing the spiritual splits, right? They got one foot way over here in the world and another foot way over here trying to be in the kingdom. And what we really need to do is choose today whom we're going to serve. Amen? Cold may then speak of one who had, in some cases, some believe, and I'll just give you another perspective, that someone who's cold is hard-hearted toward God. A person who's lukewarm is neither on fire nor, nor cold. But Jesus said, I could wish you were all hot or cold. See, he sees lukewarmness as more dangerous than being cold to him. So some believe that coldness does mean a, a kind of a hardened heart. But the way the Lord's speaking up here in the context, I believe that he's talking about it being refreshing. A lukewarm person has enough of Jesus to satisfy a craving for religion, but not enough for eternal life. They have enough of a craving to be religious, but not enough to surrender their lives fully to the Lord. And the sad part is, and this breaks my heart, and I pray that nobody in this room is in this case, but if it is, maybe today's the day you need to get right with the Lord. Just being religious, just knowing about God is not enough. Guys, it's not enough to believe that Jesus is God. The demons believe and tremble, the Bible says. We have to go beyond just, uh, again, it's a thing I do an hour every week. 
It's more than religion. I love that, and I've grown to hate the word religion, but I love what it means. Relingara, you guys have heard this. Religion today has come to mean man's efforts through man's good works to somehow approach Almighty God. And a lot of what is called religion today is really, uh, you know, community country club or whatever. And it's some other attempt for man to approach God apart from Jesus Christ without a relationship with him. But the word relingara, which we'll get toward religion, is to relink. And so religion should be relinking sinful man back to holy God. Our sin separated us from him, and it's, again, relingara that relinks us back to the Lord. So I don't like what it's come to mean, but that's what, in its original sense, I love what it means. So they have enough of Jesus to satisfy a craving for religion, but not enough for eternal life. One who has outward religion without a true inward relationship. Has there been a greater curse upon the, the earth than empty religion? Here's the sad part. People are zealous for a religion and they're headed to hell without Jesus and they're passionate about it. And here's an indictment on the church sometimes. Many cultists will do more for a lie than we will do for the truth. And they're passionate about it, and it breaks my heart. I've shared with you, I've been to India seven times, and I remember being there, and this guy was on his face, and I didn't have an interpreter, and he was crying out to the statue of an elephant. And he was weeping and crying out, and I wanted to tell him, bro, that statue was carved by somebody. There's a true and living God that loves you. You know, guys, we get to talk to the creator of the universe. The veil's been torn. We can enter into the presence of Almighty God anywhere and anytime, and he hears our prayers. He also is seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Amen? But when someone's in a dead religion, they're yelling down a well. Is there a soul harder to reach than one who has just enough of Jesus to think they have enough? I think they've got enough Jesus. Well, I know Jesus. My older brother used to say this, and he went to heaven uh, last year, but uh, he really dedicated his life toward the end. I'm thankful for that. But he used to say to me, oh, brother, hey, Dave, my big concrete brother. He'd go, hey, Dave, me and Jesus, man, we're like this. Me and Jesus, we're like this. And I'd say, I don't think so. <laughs> Love you. Yeah, I don't think so. You know, and, and he, you know, he just had issues in his life. But at the end of his life, man, he really surrendered his life to the Lord. The last four or five posts he put on Facebook were all about God's grace and how blown away he was that the Lord loved him in spite of who he's been. And that's someone who gets it. Amen? And now he's in heaven. But the sad part is there was outward religion with no inward change. The church at Laodicea was just a bunch of Christians in name only, but there was no fruit and their lives were not on fire for God. And again, neither healing nor refreshing. The lukewarmness typified by apathy and self-reliance. The city was very self-reliant. The church had become the same way. They didn't need to cry out to God. We got enough money in the bank. You know, we, 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 we already have what we need. Our city is great. When we have great commerce, we don't need to cry out to God for anything. And that's a sad place to be. Often a cold-hearted sinner who has little or no church background is more open to the gospel than an apathetic person who's trusting in empty religion. I want to tell you something, the, the opposite of being on, in faith or having a love for the Lord, the thing that concerns me the most is not the person that gets angry when you talk to them about God, because they're being convicted, amen? When you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that barks the loudest is the one you hit, amen? And so when you, when you share something and they're you know, coming back at you hard, I'm like, oh, the Lord's working on that brother, amen? You know the ones I'm concerned about? The ones are just like, whatever, don't care apathetic, for Christians in this case, lukewarm. They're not on fire for God. They're not being used by the Lord. They're not convicted by their sin. They're just on the cruise control thinking they're on their way to heaven, and it's tragic. The tax collectors and the harlots were more open to Jesus than the scribes and the Pharisees. Amen? Those who were fur- seemed to be furthest away knew they were sinners, knew that they needed salvation. The Pharisees and the scribes thought they were holier than Jesus. And they looked down on our Savior, and they tied the mint and come in, and they loved the praises of men, and they were so far away from being saved. Praise God, some of those Pharisees did get saved. Nicodemus, right? Joseph Arimathea, right? Some of those guys that God used mightily. But the point is that sometimes we think that the person, well, they're so close to being saved because they're so involved in a lot of things, but that's not the case typically. You'll never recognize your need for a Savior until you recognize you're a sinner first. Amen? 
Once you recognize you're a sinner, you'll know you have a need for a savior. Pharisees didn't see themselves as sinners. They saw themselves as those who judged those who sinned. The thief on the cross was cold toward Jesus and clearly saw his need. The apostle John was hot toward Jesus and enjoyed intimate fellowship with him. But Judas was lukewarm, following Jesus enough to be considered a disciple, but never giving his heart to Jesus. My prayer for all of us is we don't confuse church attendance with the walk with God. Praise God you're here. I hope you feel welcomed and loved here. If you don't know the Lord, I'm glad you're here. We love you. We pray for, for people to come and feel welcomed and loved. But deep down, there is no one more miserable than the lukewarm Christian. Why is that? Because they don't have that passionate relationship with the Lord. And they have enough of the Lord to be miserable in the world, but so much of the world, they can't walk in intimate fellowship with God. Again, they're doing the spiritual splits. What Jesus wants to do is, cha- is change in us as much as anything is a deceptive uh, thought of playing the middle. Who are you, are you for him or against him? There's no kind of saved. Amen? You're either in the kingdom of God, you're either fully in the Jesus, or you're an enemy of the Lord. Be you hot or cold, if you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Satan will give us any way he can We use anything he can to get us, but he prizes the lukewarm religion as far above a cold-hearted sinner because he knows that what will happen is when people call themselves, what is one of the biggest things that keeps people from coming to church or wanting anything to do with Christianity? What is it? It's hypocrisy. It's Christians. Amen? When I talk to people about Jesus, they rarely have a problem with Jesus, but they'll always say, oh, I had this Christian partner one time. He ripped me off. Or, you know, I was dating this Christian guy and I found out he was cheating on me. Or I did, and they got all these examples of Christians. Guys, we don't follow Christians, we follow Christ. Amen? Christians are a bunch of stinking vile sinners that are all redeemed by the Savior. Amen? God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. We're called sheep in the Bible. Sheep are stupid. They'll run the same hole over and over and over again. Sounds like my life sometimes. How about you? Now, again, you're precious in God's eyes. You're the pearl of great price. He sold everything, right? To buy that plot of land just so you could be redeemed. He came to the cross so you could be forgiven. But the sad part is, as believers, let's, let's be on fire for God and not, settle, not be satisfied with a lukewarm walk. Amen? Make him the priority, the passion of our lives. By the way, you know, if uh, it's been said, you don't have to advertise a fire quoted this on Thursday, Spurgeon paraphrased it. He said, you know, he's talking about, he's talking to seminary students. He said, look, you be so in love with the Lord and so filled with the Holy Spirit that people come on Sunday to watch you burn. That just the Lord's coming out of you because you spend so much time with the Lord. And shouldn't that be all of us? Where we, we walk into, again, we're all sinners saved by grace. We're no better than anybody else. We're one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. But guys, when you walk into the room, the Holy Spirit just showed up and God wants to use you. Pray for those divine appointments and opportunities to share your faith with people all around you. Satan loves lukewarm Christians because the life of a lukewarm believer turns people away from Jesus. Their one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom behavior causes a lost world to see them as hypocrites and to doubt the power of God to change lives. One of the many things I loved about the Jesus Revolution movie, and I was in the tent as as a boy and I got to see that firsthand. I'll never forget it. But was just how real it was showing what the hippies were going through. And then they met the Lord and how their lives were transformed. Amen. Our God is a transforming God. Doesn't mean we won't sin anymore. Uh, anybody not sin this week? <laughs> Pride's a sin, so don't raise your hand, right? But, you know, you heard me say it, Christians aren't sinless, but we should sin less. Because only because we're now new creations in Christ. Lukewarm walk is one that is filled with compromise. It drives people from the Lord instead of drawing them to Him. A lukewarm walk allows fleshly desires, personal comfort, popular opinion to usurp the Word of God. I hear pastors all the time now saying, well, you know, but that was mistranslated and this, just stop it. My head's going to explode when I hear that, especially from people that call themselves pastors who are teaching the Bible to people. Guys, basic instructions before leaving earth, right? Bible, right? And this is how, this is the direction. This is what God gives to us. We can understand. This is a marriage manual. 
It's a manual on how to raise children. It's how to live a holy and set-apart life. Guys, it's 66 books written by 40 authors on three continents and three languages over 1,500 years with one central theme and no contradictions. That's only possible because God wrote it. Amen? And yet we'll watch Netflix for 20 hours and try to find our Bible on Sunday morning because we didn't see it since last Sunday. My encouragement for all of us is read the book. Amen? So Laodicea means ruler, rule of the people. And the church may also represent a church run by a majority instead of by God. I don't know if you saw this. There was just a, a thing that came on. I, I have a thing where I get a lot of Christian TikToks sent to me, right? And this, they were ordaining a new pastor at this Baptist church. And then a lady came up and said, we didn't all vote for you. We didn't vote for you. And there was a full-blown brawl in the Baptist church because they didn't vote for him. Here's the good news around here. We don't vote for anything because we don't vote. Cause when, you know, the only time you see them voting in the Bible, they voted to go back to Egypt. Amen. <laughs> so we don't follow. you know, what we do, we follow what the word of God says. Amen. And we don't have to vote on it. God's word says it, that settles it. We're doing it. Amen. One commenter, commentator put it this way of Laodicea, its name designates it as a church of mob rule. The democratic church in which everything is swayed and decided by popular opinion, clamor, and voting. I've had enough voting for my lifetime. How about you? Reflected in Jesus' address to the church at Laodicea, it was the church, again, other churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Sardis. But here, uh, he speak, here it is, the church at Laodicea. It's been said that lukewarmness is one natural tendency of the fallen man. Again, cold, cold water makes you shiver and and great heat uh, causes pain, but lukewarmness makes you comfortable in your flesh. The water's too hot, it hurts. The water's too cold, you shiver. So what do we want? We want lukewarmness. And that's what our flesh desires. But that's not what God has for us. He has something far better for us. Amen? So that, that temperature, it suits human nature. And the world is always at peace with the lukewarm church. They want us to be lukewarm. They want us to be silent. And they want us to agree with their sinful behavior because that's what the world wants. Notice he says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. What does Jesus think about lukewarmness? Makes him want to puke. Makes him sick. Sick to his stomach, to his very core. It's one of the strongest and most shocking statements made by Jesus in the entire Bible. He's always so gracious and kind, except to the religious Pharisees who we rebuke. And now he's talking to this church and he said, you make me sick. Can you imagine if the Lord wrote a letter to Calvary Chapel, Canal Valley, and it said, you make me sick. Yeah, no bueno. We don't want that. Imagine again, if he showed up here this morning and said that to us. What are you saying to the church? The word vomit there is the violent expulsion of something from the body that is making the body sick. I was so proud of myself at one point. I'd gone 25 years without throwing up. Had a non-vomit, you know, streak. 25 years, no, no puking for 25 years. Then I went to the hospital in 2009, and they estimated I threw up more than 1,000 times. I just threw up all the time. Just threw up. That's all I did. Just threw up, just threw up, threw up. And when you throw up a lot, it, it burns your throat. It, it destroyed my teeth. I had to get all my teeth fixed because all the acid, right? So throwing up is not fun. It's something you try to avoid, amen? But at the same time, if it's something in you making sick, throwing up sometimes is the best thing that could happen because you get it out of you, amen? And the Lord is puking this church up. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth because lukewarmness is not what the Lord has for us. It's almost always a violent and painful thing. It's not fun. It wasn't fun for Jesus to visit a church like this. Jesus recognized this behavior as dangerous uh, to the rest of the body, so much so that he had to be expelled, they had to be expelled from the body. From the vantage point of heaven, it is an affront to anyone who would claim to have a personal, intimate relationship with the Lord, their sins forgiven, the Holy Spirit living inside of them, heaven bound, but would not be zealous or on fire for him. Tell me, the, tell me what the argument is to be lukewarm. Tell me how it makes any sense that we could be in love with Jesus and then keep it to ourselves. 
The most selfish thing we could do as believers is go to heaven by ourselves. Amen? God's called us to, you know, the only thing we're taking to heaven with us is people, and people need to hear about the Lord. As lost as we were, as sinful as we are, in light of what we deserve, and yet by God's grace, through his sacrifice of his son, who died a torturous death in our place, we've been redeemed, we've been forgiven, we've been made new creations in Christ, we've been adopted into his family, we have the promise of heaven, and us not being zealous makes no sense to those in the heavenlies looking on. You ever think about what angels must think when they see what's happening in the church? We, know, we always think about what God thinks, that's most important. But can you imagine, you know, just saying, what are you doing? Why is there so much compromise? If we're not zealous, it's because our focus is not on the truth. We're not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, but have given our flesh its desires. We're pursuing comfort over character, one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom. We have become lukewarm, and it makes our Savior sick. Between you and the Lord, are you lukewarm? If you are, it's time to repent. Amen? Lord, give us an eternal perspective. Fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Point number three there, looking at ourselves in light of God's word. Again, see, if we look at ourselves compared to the world, we can always find somebody worse than ourselves, right? God doesn't grade on a curve, he grades at the cross. And you, but you can always find someone worse than, well, I'm no, I'm no Osama bin Laden. I mean, I'm no Hitler. I mean, right? Nice high bar you set for yourself. Appreciate it. But here's the reality. <laughs> That we, we look at the most sinful person, we compare ourselves to them, but we don't compare ourselves to Osama bin Laden, we compare ourselves to Jesus Christ. We've all fallen short, amen? So looking at ourselves through God's word, here's what it says in verse 17, because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Boy, this is a rough letter for this church. He said, you make me sick. I want to puke, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. And then he says, because you think you're rich, because you think you're wealthy, and you have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You think you got it all going on. I got, I got two million followers on TikTok, man. Right? You think, I got a big house, I got a bunch of money in the bank, I invest well, I've got it all going on, you know, I can bench press 500 pounds, whatever, right? All these things you think make you a value, and then we put our faith in ourselves. And the Lord tells them, He sees them how they really are. The word wealthy there is implying praise in their self-acquired riches, right? Remember the city had these great industries, and everybody there was wealthy. They didn't need the help of anybody. And because they were wealthy, they did not see that they were indeed uh, wretched, looking at themselves, were very prideful, very self-sufficient, thought they were spiritual, very spiritual. Jesus sees them in a very different light. So here's the point, guys, of these next verses here. It doesn't matter what the world thinks of you. It's what Jesus knows about you that matters. Amen? We can fool the world. You won't fool God. Amen? So where you're at with Jesus, that's what really matters. When you stand before God on Judgment Day, no one's going to look at your 401k. They're not going to care how many followers you had. It won't make any difference. It's what have you done with God's son? And you know what? If we want to see revival, we need to light the fire again. Amen? It says, because you say, they had, they had redefined what it means to be spiritually mature believer. They threw away God's definition and made their own. I'm rich. I become wealthy. I have no need of anything. You know, we've got an entire movement in the church today. And I, I'll, let me take that back people pretending to be in the church today, where they make everything about money. That Jesus is the holy Santa Claus in the sky. And if you give us a seed offering of $1,000, God will bless you with 10 grand back. And it becomes, a, it's like the holy lottery. And it's just tragic to me. And you'll see, I, I saw one the other day and it said, the guy said, if you'll send him $300, God's going to pour out powerful blessings upon you. Does that sound like anything Jesus would say? Yeah, I walked on water. You want to see that again? Give me 300 bucks. That will never happen. Amen. But it's so hypocritical. But what does it do? It feeds the flesh. Because what do people want? Money. Right? What does money buy? Comfort and, you know, debauchery in some cases, right? And so it feeds the flesh. We're to deny ourselves, take up the cross and follow him. You think you have need of nothing. Thought they had it all because they had a lot of stuff. 
You know, it's interesting. I, I meet people all the time because I've done hundreds of funerals and I've been with people on their deathbed more times than I can count. And no one ever regrets not going on a trip or not making enough money or not buying a bigger house. The two things I always hear from believers, I wish I had served God more and I'd spent more time with my family. Always. Why? Because that's your first ministry. Saying you have need of nothing. They're not holding their lives against the mirror of God's word. You know what's great about mirrors? They never lie. <laughs> Amen? Unless you're at the circus with one of those funny ones or something, right? But when you, you know, you get up in the morning and the mirror, you get in front of that thing and you assess the damage from the night before. Amen? <laughs> Hair's all over, you got teeth, you know, right? And you use the mirror. What do you use the mirror for? To straighten everything out. Amen? The Word of God is the truth. It's the mirror into our souls and makes us recognize where we are falling short and how we get right with the Lord. Amen? But what happens is when you don't spend time in the Word, if you don't ever look at the mirror, we'd be in a, a muttly group in here this morning. Amen? Imagine nobody looked at a mirror for a year. What would that look like? So, that's a, so the Word of God is that mirror that reveals the truth for us. They were not holding their lives to the standard of the Word of God. Redefined it means to be uh, spiritually mature because they were biblically illiterate. The number one reason that people get away with stuff, saying things, is because the church itself has their biggest problem is biblical illiteracy. If we don't read the Bible, if we don't know the truth, we're not going to recognize the lie. This church is just the opposite of Smyrna. They thought they were poor and had no physical wealth. And Jesus said, you are rich because of their faithfulness and their walk with God. Laodicea thought they were rich because of their physical wealth. And Jesus tells them that how poor they really are. See, the people that didn't have anything, the Lord said to them, you're rich spiritually. And the people that thought they had everything, the Lord said they were poor spiritually. Now, can you be wealthy and serve the Lord? What's the answer? Absolutely. As long as that treasure doesn't become more important than the Lord. And, you know, as my, my good friend, Pastor Rob says, if God can get it through you, he'll get it to you sometimes. Amen? If you're, if you're going to give it away and, and help minister to other people, God will often give you the, the ability to do that. He says, but, but because you say and do not know, you say that these things are true, but you don't know. And the reason you don't know is nobody's told you. So Jesus is going to tell them. He says, wretched, it means worn out, fatigued in their vain and empty pursuits, not heirs of God, but slaves of sin. That's pretty heavy. You think you're rich and you're this and you're wretched. Miserable is to be pitied by all men. Thought they had accomplished much and should be praised by men. And Jesus said, you've done nothing and should be pitied by all men. Again, the world we're living in today is so caught up in their image. And guys, we shouldn't be caught up in trying to make ourselves have an image that people admire. We should do everything we can to be more in the image of our Savior. Amen? And sadly, we see it. I mean, I think, I think that people that, you know, not all of them, but people that are celebrities and stuff and just are fighting to have their name known and things like that, I think they're probably some of the most miserable people on this planet. Because there's no answer and there's no hope. Amen? You can't make enough money. You can't... Be famous enough. There's always something more that you need to do. And every time you achieve it, it doesn't satisfy because you have a God-shaped vacuum that only Jesus can fill. It cannot be filled by money, by sex, by drugs, by power, by fame, by anything else. It can only be satisfied by Jesus Christ. Amen? He said they're poor, having no spiritual riches, no holiness of heart. He said they were blind. Now, it's interesting that they sell ISAF. It's one of their big industries. They help people able to see, and yet they're blind. The Lord calls them blind. He says, having no spiritual understanding, you're walking in darkness. In a city famous for healing Isab, they were spiritually blind. They're also well known for the clothes they make. And what did he say at the end there? You're naked. See, you're clothed in your black robes and it's soft clothing that everybody admires and you ship it all over the world. You're not clothed with the righteousness and holiness of God but you're naked in their sin in a city, again, famous for being clothed so well. The contrasts are shocking between what they think they are and what they really are. This is what they think they are. And the Lord says, you're none of that. You're the exact opposite of it. And that's a word maybe for some of us. Maybe we think we have a relationship with the Lord. And again, by your fruit, they shall know you. Again, 
works does not lead to salvation, but salvation should produce good works. Amen? Between the wealth and the influence of their city and their own spiritual bankruptcy, again, Lord, help us to see us through His eyes, not our own. Nakedness produces shame. When man sinned in the garden, they were before, before they sinned, they were naked and unashamed. And then once they you know, ate of the tree, they were naked and ashamed. Their sin was in clear view. And after the, they sinned, they, they were ashamed. They hid themselves. They covered themselves. And here's the reality. One of the things that does have to happen, again, for us to be saved is we, we need to come to a place where we are ashamed. Amen? We recognize, you know what? I'm not right with God. I need to fix this. I need to get right with Him. Nakedness bring sin and shame, come to Jesus. He will not only make you spiritually rich, but he will clothe you in his righteousness and he will cover all your sin and shame. Amen? Point number four, letting go of the temporal, pursuing the eternal. Notice what it says here in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me good ref- gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. Jesus, having rebuked those in Laodicea for putting their faith in their stockpile of worldly riches, talks to them about true riches. Buy from me. The context, let go of your self-sufficiency, all the pride you've accumulated, everything you have in the world, and surrender your life to me. Give up everything that would prevent you from coming to Jesus. That's a hard prayer to pray. Lord, if there's anything in my life that's keeping me from you, take it away. Got one amen quietly in the building. <laughs> we don't buy from the Lord earthly things. We get from him eternal things. What does a prophet of man begins the whole world and loses his own soul? To buy from him, we must let go of our self-sufficiency and come to him. It says in Isaiah 55, 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. To buy from him we must first recognize our need and the insufficiency of our worldly riches to get us to heaven. Come to him, letting go of yourself. Come to him, the one who can redeem you. Notice this gold refined in fire. We've talked about this. We're running short on time here. But gold, the way they refine it is they heat it up really hot. And what it does is it takes the impurities in the gold and it rises to the top. It's called dross. And they scrape all the dross off and then they heat it hotter and it, more of the dross comes to the top and they keep scraping it off so that the gold becomes pure and pure. And you know when they know that they're finished is when the gold is so pure they, that re, they can see the reflection in it. And so as the dross is removed, we're going to look more and more like Jesus. Amen? We're going to become more and more like him. So there's a refiner's fire that God uses in our life to mold us more like him. The gold refined through intense heat, impurities rise, and they are removed. Love that picture. Come and receive from me without money, without price, faith that shall stand in every trial and riches that will last for all eternity. Notice he says there, along with uh, buy from your refined gold, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed. There's a little contrast from the garments in Laodicea. Everybody's wearing all black. You think he's stumbling with his words? Of course not. He's always perfect. Amen? He says, buy for me white garments. You're walking in in sin. You're covered in it. You're proud of it. You're living it out loud in front of everybody else. You come to me and I'll clothe you in righteousness. That's what he's telling them. And you know what? We need to be clothed in his righteousness. Amen? That the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. To those who have clothed much of the world in their black garments, that and it had made them wealthy, they are getting you know, a direct comment from the Lord that you're so far away from the truth. Then he says, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Does the Lord know who he's talking to? <laughs> Amen? He knows they're proud of their eye salve. They're proud of what they've created. And he's like, yeah, that's, you don't need that. You need what I have. You don't need what the world has or what you created or who you think you are. You need to surrender your life to the Lord. He told them they were blind spiritually, calling them to anoint their eyes that they may see spiritually. Their salve would not get the job done. No amount of eye drops is going to make you see spiritually. But he told them they needed to open their eyes. The word anoint there speaks of the Holy Spirit who illuminates the truth of God's word. You're spiritually poor, blind, and naked. Come to Jesus. He'll make you spiritually rich, clothe you in righteousness, and illuminate the truth of God's word. You know what happens when you give light to the Lord? The scales fall from your eyes when you read the Bible. Amen? Some of you, you read the Bible before you got saved. 
Couldn't really understand it. You give your life to the Lord, and now it's the living, breathing Word of God. Point number five, learning to love the Lord's discipline. It says there in verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. When receiving such a harsh rebuke, you made me sick. You're wretched, miserable, poor, and blind. It might start to wonder, has Jesus lost his love for this errant church and its lukewarm beliefs? And the truth here is no. He still calls them to repentance. So you can take a million steps away from God. It truly is only one step back. Amen? He writes this letter to this church so that they would repent. They would recognize that they need to get right with him and to give them an opportunity to do so. Jesus' great love for them is expressed in his rebuke. The word for love here, believe it or not, it's not agape. It's phileo. It's a, it's a, a deep affection. And even though I rebuke and chasten you, I still want to be your friend. His deep love for even the lukewarm and the rebellious seen in his willingness to rebuke and chastise them that they might repent and be restored. I'm glad that the Lord disciplines me because when he does, it draws me back closer to him. It is correction of the Holy Spirit's conviction that brings us back. Without rebuke, without discipline, without conviction, we would remain in our sin and continue to head further and further away from the Lord. Rebuke can also demonstrate a pastor's love and faithfulness to his calling. It says in 2 Timothy 4, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap for themselves teachers. If a pastor loves the sheep he's over, he will teach them the word of God. He will teach it with boldness. He'll do it in love, but he'll do it without compromise. Amen. And that's what this text says. And you know what? It's not always easy to make that stand, but that's the stand that needs to be made. Then he says there again, I rebuke you, therefore be zealous. The word zealous there, I love it. It's a Greek word here. It means to have warmth, to have warmth. Jesus is saying, repent, leave your lukewarm faith and be on fire for God. That's the pastor day paraphrase, right? Let's, let's be zealous for the Lord. Let's Again, light that fire again. It makes Jesus sick, sick when we were all professing Christians attempt to live with one foot in the world, as we said, and he was calling them to be hot for God, to be zealous for him. Point number six, let Jesus in. We're almost done. Get to prepare for a time of communion. This is a perfect time to do it. Then he says in verse 20, so he's telling them, he's rebuking them, behold, I stand at the door knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, dine with him, and he with me. Notice the grace of our Savior. He rebukes them for all the things they've done wrong, but he says, look, I'm still here knocking on the door of your heart. And if you will open the door, I will come in. I will dine with you. I'll make you a new creation. And so here's the Lord, even though they're so far away from God, even though there's nothing positive to say, there is a word of encouragement in the end that I'm knocking on the door of your heart if you will but answer the door. And here's the thing, no one else can answer the door for you. Just going to church doesn't answer the door for you. At some point, you have to be the one that responds to the Lord and you open the door and you invite him into your life. Amen? The Lord gives this great invitation to every single individual in that church to respond to his invitation, to enter into intimate fellowship with him. And the invitation is universal, but it must be accepted individually. Salvation is offered to everyone. He desires that none should perish, no, not one, but it must be accepted individually. I can't force you to take a gift, but someone can offer you a gift and now you have to receive it. Salvation is a gift. Uh, the word of God, if, it was, if we got it because of good works, it would be a paycheck. It's not a paycheck. It's not something we earned. It's something God gives us. Amen? Each individual must decide how they will respond to the open door and the invitation of Jesus. Or do they just leave the door shut, rejecting Jesus, turning a deaf ear to his voice, crying out to them, his knocking on the door of their heart? Each individual has an opportunity to respond. To respond, he must open the door by repenting of his pride, his self-sufficiency, his human uh, wisdom, and his cowardly neutrality. It's cowardice to stand in the middle. It really is. For this biblical, ignorant, lukewarm church, the thought of an actual intimate relationship with God was foreign to them, and he's calling them unto salvation. Verse 21 there, 
again, verse 22, it said, last point is living in light of the heavenly reward. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. He was ears to hear, let him hear what the spirit of the Lord says. To him who overcomes, who he responds to the call. He who opens the door at the knocking. He who walks away from compromise and self-sufficiency and lukewarmness of the church and enters into intimate fellowship with Almighty God. While the fellowship would be enough, Jesus give them, he gives them a promise. I will grant you to sit with me. Guys, we're going to be in heaven. We're going to have a millennial kingdom on earth where he's going to rule and reign for a thousand years and we will reign with him. And again, he's going to give us rewards for being faithful. Guys, is there anything greater than, than being with the Lord for all eternity, having intimate fellowship with the King of kings and Lord of lords? His grace is astounding. In their current state, he says, you make me sick, but you don't have to. You make me sick, but we can get this right today. And that's the exhortation the Lord is giving them. I will not enter into intimate fellowship with you, but you will rule and reign with me. What a blessing. What an amazing grace. He's calling. He's knocking. Have you opened the door? So in closing, turning up again, leaving the lukewarm lock behind, seven steps. Number one, living every day knowing that Jesus is watching, leaving behind the lifestyle of compromise. Don't be satisfied being lukewarm. Looking at ourselves in light of God's word. That's the mirror, the final court of authority. Letting go of temporal and pursuing the eternal. When this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. Learning to love the Lord's discipline, recognizing those who the Lord loves He disciplines, letting Jesus into your life, inviting Him in, and living in light of the heavenly reward. Lord, we thank You, we praise You, we love You. We ask now as we go to this time of communion, that Lord, we would do this in remembrance of You. Lord, that we would look back to the cross of Calvary, the greatest act of love in all of human history. We'd also look within our own hearts before You, for anybody here that doesn't know you, I pray that this would be a time where they would surrender their life to you. They would invite you in. They would answer that door on their heart that you're knocking on. I pray also, Lord, I'm thankful that your word also tells us that in the upper room, you told the disciples, the next time you do this, we'll do this with you in heaven. So we look back to the cross. We look within our own hearts, but we also look forward to the day when we will take communion with you in heaven. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said... So the guys are going to pass the elements. Just hang on to them for a moment. I would encourage you to take a moment, spend some time in prayer between you and the Lord. Again, looking back to the cross, if there's anything in, in your own heart that the Lord needs to deal with, invite him to do that. And also remember there's a day coming we'll take this with them in heaven. Amen?